Hi there, it's Cameron McCormick from Altus Performance, and this is the Earn Your Edge podcast. And I'm joined by a legend, a World Golf Hall of Fame player that hails from the town of Ayr in Queensland, Australia. A lady that forged her path in professional golf from a town of less than 5,000 people, I'm guessing, on the coast in far north Queensland, Australia. And it's a great honor to be talking today with Kari Webb. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Cam. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. So our mission with this podcast, a bit of background, I guess, is to unpack how high performers have earned an edge separated from their peers. And often that conversation takes on a bit of a biographical structure. And I'm afraid if we go through your life and career like that, after all, it's filled with hundreds upon hundreds of accolades, we'd be here for hours and hours. So out of respect for your time and also in the recognition that a career is often a result of pivotal moments or periods or people that we meet, I've pinpointed a few that I want to dig into. And I guess with that, we'll start with the period of becoming. You didn't exactly grow up in a hotbed of golf talent and development, did you? No, I didn't. Um, very small town. Actually, not quite as small as you made it out, but it's still <laughs> not very big, about, about 8,000 people. Um, we have one golf course and, yeah, but live, for me, just living in a smaller town, I think I had access to the golf course all the time and, you know, from the age of four, my, my grandparents used to take me out on their, their one day off a week on a Sunday morning and I'd take my plastic clubs out there and, and we'd go and play nine holes. So ever since the age of four, I wanted to play golf. And I, I read, you just mentioned plastic clubs. I read that you played with those plastic clubs until the age of eight. I, I can't fathom that. Is that true? Yeah, that is true. My grandparents, as I, you know, probably got to six and seven, obviously I was way too strong for plastic clubs and the plastic head would fly off further than the golf ball and I'd get pretty frustrated. So <laughs> um, they promised for my eighth birthday that they'd get me a set of real clubs or cut down clubs, which so when my eighth birthday rolled around, I knew what I was getting for my birthday. So I was super excited. <laughs> Beautiful. You also mentioned one day a week just on Sunday. Was that basically the volume from age four until age eight or did it slowly like kind of increase as you, as you aged up? Yeah, four to eight, it was, it was on a Sunday and it probably wasn't every Sunday. In my memory, it felt like it was every Sunday, but I'm sure it wasn't every Sunday, but it, you know, my grandparents worked six days a week owning their own business and the fact that they even wanted to take a four-year-old out on the golf course on their one day off was uh was pretty impressive but that that lit the fire under me Mm -hmm. and tournaments came to into your life at what point in time at what point in time did competition become important to you and, and and you participate in it uh well i think i'm i'm just naturally competitive you know i started playing junior golf when i was eight on saturday mornings and Back then, we only had a head pro at our club probably for the first three or four months of my first year playing golf. And so it consists of, you know, maybe a half-hour clinic and then and then off we went. My first Saturday, you know, I was out there playing nine holes. Yeah. Days, you know, kids will, you know, do clinics for a while, then, then they play three holes and then six and then nine. You know, I started in the very first Saturday morning going out there and playing nine holes. Do you remember what you scored? Um, it was like 90 something. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you know, even then too, there was no parents out there. It was, they just sent me with two older kids that helped me count and yeah. And away we went. Yeah. You also mentioned in there, which is interesting to discuss this since it's what I do. Coaching access to coaching was few and far between, but you had a, your local pro. What point did, uh, in your developmental years, did you realize, well, I've got to get, um, get some further help here or did that not happen? Yeah, well, um, so when the, the head pro left probably halfway through that first year that I was playing junior golf, my parents were really good friends with, well, he ended up being the head greenkeeper, but at the time he, he was just, you know, one of the better players in the club and club champion a few times. And one of the reasons why my parents got in, my grandparents and grandparents got into golf was because his parents owned the news agency next door to my grandparents' store. So, um, and he was into golf. So that's how my family got into golf. So when we lost the head pro, they didn't replace him with anybody. So Calvin ended up becoming my teacher from, from the age of eight, and Calvin still works with me today. Wow. And Calvin learned all of his golf knowledge through working for his parents in the news agency and reading every golf magazine he could You're find. You're kidding me. Yeah. Wow, that's brilliant. That's his yeah, brilliant. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. So, um, you know, that was that was his golf knowledge was was what he what he'd read in, in, in golf magazines. And he, and he so, transferred that along to you and it was uh, imminently successful. We know that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so it sort of was very informal to start with. Mum and dad just said, if you know, if you see her out there and, you know, she's doing wrong, you know, things wrong, just, you know, point her in the right direction sort of thing. And he, he was out there most afternoons anyway playing golf. So, you know, it, it's, it was very informal to start with. And then, you know, as I started to get more interested in it, you know, we had formal lessons once or twice a week and I'd play golf with him. Sometimes I caddied, I'd play junior golf Saturday morning and then I'd caddy for him Saturday afternoon when he was playing. Mm-hmm. So just, you know, for me watching him and, and everyone else that he played with, you know, I sort of started to learn the game just by watching. When you were growing up, and I know it happened for me this way and it happens for many that I coach this way, there's a summer or there's a week or there's a round that sticks out in your mind that becomes that round. You're like, whoa, I can actually do that. Do you actually remember maybe the first time you shot par or the first time that really low round came out of you and you're like, whoa, yeah, I'm actually really good at this? Yeah, I think I just, you know, I just sort of had success at every level. Even my very first junior tournament that I traveled away to, well, I thought I had success, but it was my very first ever 18 holes. And I got the Encouragement Award, which in Australia is sometimes called the Bradman Award, which yep. means that you that you come last. But um, I walked away with a trophy that day, and that you know, from there, it just that was that was where the competitive part of me was was that I wanted to keep adding trophies to my bedroom. So you know, I sort of just had success along the way. I don't really ever remember you know, when I shot my first even par round, I, you know, you remember like breaking 100, breaking 90, breaking 80, breaking 70, you know, those are the sort of mm-hmm. landmark numbers that you set out to achieve. But, you know, and along the way was, you know, dominating, you know, local golf in North Queensland and then and then started travelling away to the bigger events down in Brisbane and, and started getting sent away. It took a while because of where I live for anyone to want to actually pay for me to to go away because they had to pay an extra flight for me to get from Townsville to Brisbane. So, yeah, it, it took a while before um, the LGU, you know, put the money behind me to, to start travelling in a state and to, to the bigger events. Yeah, and LGU, that's the Ladies Golf Union of Australia, yes? Yeah, yeah, cool. they've amalgamated now to Golf Australia, but at the time the women and the men were separate. One of the more common questions that we get from Altus clients and listeners is how do I spin it like a tour player? Well, the first step is to treat your equipment like a tour player, and that means that you've got the right golf ball and you've got fresh grooves. Visit Vokey.com to see the spin research that Bob Vokey and his team have conducted to better understand how grooves wear over time. After 75 to 100 rounds of golf, you owe it to yourself to test your grooves to make sure that they're still getting maximum spin from your wedges. Find a fitter at Vokey.com for a spin test soon. Let's wind back a little bit because there's a thread there that I want to pull on, and that's the difference between maybe you and uh, other boys and girls that are growing up in maybe not necessarily the town, or it could certainly include the town, but the greater North Queensland area. And you said your innate competitiveness, was that competitiveness that was forged out of any, I guess, um, strategies that your parents used, or was it from interactions with your siblings or it was just everything that you did you were competitive in yeah I just I played a ton of sport in primary school you know all the different sports the school had to offer and uh, it wasn't until probably when I was in grade eight that I decided that I just wanted to concentrate on golf I was also doing tap dancing and guitar lessons and all you know (laughs) my parents my parents you know whatever I showed interest in they were happy to let me experience and see see what direction it took me in. But golf was the one thing that always pulled me, you know, pulled me back to, you know, that's what I wanted to do. But, you know, my parents, there was no strategy. It was just I was a competitive kid. I was the eldest. So, I, I you know, it wasn't like I was competing against older brothers and sisters. I just I, I just think that's just an, a natural instinct that I was born with, that yeah. whatever I did, I wanted to, to do the best that I could. And golf 
I was obviously the best at that. So I think that's why I was drawn to it. Yeah, that was your inclination to chase that, which you did for a great career. We'll continue to unpack here. But it, uh, in 1986, I read that you traveled to Brisbane, I think, to watch yeah. a legend, a hero, Greg Norman, and then you came back with a dream. Can you explain that dream? Yeah. So my birthday is uh, right before Christmas. So it was for my 12th birthday, but I was still 11 at the time um, in 19. 19- 86, uh, my grandparents paid for me to, so my birthday and Christmas present was to go down to the Gold Coast, which is just south of Brisbane, to watch the Queensland Open. I stayed with my my aunt, my mum's sister down there, and Greg Norman had just won the Open Championship that year. He was number one in the world, and, and he was coming back to Australia to play in the Queensland Open. So that was my first ever experience watching a professional golf tournament, and, you know, I was, that's, I was hooked then I just loved every minute of it and and just the atmosphere of of people coming to watch other people play golf I just thought was amazing and Mm -hmm. and how good all the guys were you know I I have a lot of vivid memories of of that trip and uh, I came home and told my parents that I wanted to be a professional golfer when I grew up what was the response like you out of your mind? (laughs) No, no my parents like that's my parents have never been pushy parents but They've been very supportive and, you know, they were like, okay, if that's what you want to do, you know, that there's a lot of hard work to that. And, you know, and there was other time, you know, around that time I also said I wanted to play cricket for Australia. But at the time, though, for, for a, girl, a girl growing up, you know, cricket was a, was a boys' sport and there wasn't a lot of visibility of women's cricket. I didn't get a lot of visibility of seeing women play golf either on TV mm-hmm. or in magazines. But I knew it existed, and actually so much so that um, Golf Australia magazine has reprinted my letter to the editor. I think I was probably 12 or 13, uh, wrote a letter to the editor asking for more women's golf content in their magazines because I just, you know, these days you can just get on the internet and, and find out anything you wanted to know about, anything. And back then you had encyclopedias or golf magazines. That was it. That was the only way I could find anything out about golf and women's golf. So, you know, for me, I knew that, that if I wanted to play a sport for a living, you know, golf, even though I didn't see women's golf much, I knew it existed. And, and so that was all I needed um, to, you know, just to have that dangling carrot to chase up. Which is probably why, now, granted, um, Australian sports hero, just as you are, but growing up, uh, I guess, idolizing in some sense, Greg Norman, that you would associate as a role model, the most prominent male player of your country, of the of the world. But were there some uh, prominent Australian female players that you would give a shout out and thanks for the inspiration from when you were youth? Yeah, I, well, I, I, that's the thing. I, I really I got kind of uh, in trouble with Jane Stevenson when <laughs> my year on the LPGA I was asked that question, you know, what female role models did I look up to? Um, and I, I honestly, I didn't have any, mm-hmm. you know, my, my role models were Greg Norman, Sebi Ballesteros, you know, Ian Baker Finch, you know, the limited amount of golf that I got to watch on TV was any of the Australian tournaments and the four men's majors was, that was all I got to see up growing up. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'd never, I'd never seen Jane Stevenson play golf live or on TV until I was 16. So, you know, as a young girl, I'd, you know, that, those were my role models. And, again, I didn't know tons about the LPGA or the women that came before me. It wasn't until I was older and, you know, had access to a bit more information that, you know, that's when I, you know, started learning about the greats of the women's game and and appreciating everything that they had done. Right, indeed. Moving to developmental years and readiness to turn professional in 1994, do you remember well your skill set, what separated you from the pack when you were a teenage into your later teenage years? Yeah, I mean, I was always a kid that, you know, I was never the longest, but I hit the ball well, I hit a lot of greens. If you saw where I grew up, I grew up learning to my short game off like probably 10 different grasses that grew around the greens. Mm-hmm. And the predominant grass was buffalo grass, which is like um, St. Augustine grass here. Yeah. That's what I learned to chip off. And, you know, I've asked uh, when I worked with Ian Triggs for 10 years, I asked him, I was like, Triggsy, how did I ever learn to chip? 
when, you know, when I learned to chip, because he was up in air working with myself and Calvin, and um, I was like, how did I ever learn to chip? And he's like, you just learned to how to how to have good hands, and you learned to work it out. That's that's what you get, got from growing up up here. Yeah, um, ten different grasses. You have to do that, don't you? Yeah, yeah. So, and just to be creative and and get the club on the ball any way you could, you know. So it wasn't until I started working with Trixie really that I learned, you know, some decent basic technique that I could that I could draw upon if I was struggling with my short game. I yeah. could just go back and, you know, have a couple of checkpoints. But before that, it was literally all just natural hand-eye coordination. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the conversation you had with your parents when you were age 12, said, I have a dream of playing professional golf, and they had mentioned hard work. Can you give a description on through your teenage years what that what hard work looked like? Well, my both my parents are great examples of hard work. We were, you know, middle-class family. My dad was a builder, so he worked six days a week. And mum had different jobs working for my grandparents. She had her own business for a few years there. So I knew that to do anything, you had to, to work hard. And, you know, my mum always talks about when in my teenage years the sacrifice that I made, but I never thought of it as a sacrifice. You know, like I just, I just love going out to golf. And if I had to be away one weekend and miss a part, you know, a high school party because of golf, it just didn't bother me. I mean, I was – Kind of, you know, you know, out of the loop when I got back to high school the next week. But, you know, I'd had a great weekend away with my friends that play golf. So, mm-hmm. you know, it just never felt like a sacrifice. And fortunately for me, my high school backed up to to the golf course. So I just finished school every day and walked down to the golf course and practice until dark. And then mum would either, either pick me up if she was out with my other two sisters or I could walk home because we only lived 10 minute walk from the golf course so yeah so that you know and leading up to a tournament you know it'd be every afternoon and maybe some mornings before school because obviously I was right right next to high school anyway and then I was really lucky in in high in my last two years of high school that I had a principal that understood that you know that that there is an importance to education but there's other other ways of being successful in life and she made it so that as long as I kept my grades up that, you know, I instead of having to do six subjects, I only had to do five and I could have as much time off school, like to play in the important events around the country. So long as, you know, I did all, you know, got all my assignments in and, and sat all my exams. Um, you know, she, she really made it possible for me to graduate well through high school and, and be one of the best amateurs in the country. conversation so far is littered with support both from parents grandparents siblings and the greater community whether that be all the way to the level of lgu or uh, other mentors in the game uh, or the regional standpoint and i think importantly what you mentioned there is that love was always greater than the vehicles the hard work the sweat equity that would get you somewhere that passion that purpose that we could define as love was the thing that allowed you to chase after that dream and that goal. And now in 1994, we'll call this a moment or a period of welcome to the league, welcome to professional golf, where you, correct me if I'm wrong, you can fact check me the entirety of this conversation, clearly. Um, <laughs> you, you play the LET Ladies European Tour and you're jumping uh, across and playing Futures Tour here in America. Was there anything about your first couple, three years in professional golf that you were, you had an experience of, oh my gosh, I wasn't ready for that. If so, how did you overcome that? Well, no, I never, I never actually had that experience. So I, <laughs> um, I turned pro. So my, my last amateur event was the world, the Spirito Santo, the world amateur in Paris. And we played the Italian amateur the week before and then played that. And that was the last time I represented Australia. And actually, it was back in a time where you couldn't ever discuss that you were going to turn pro because you could lose your amateur status. And, um, I had told my teammates that if I play if I played well at the World Amateur, I I was going to turn pro, um, which one of them went and t- told our manager, and so then then I got the you know trying to talk me out of it and that I wasn't ready and, <laughs> but I you know I really felt like 
I mean, if someone was going to give me some money to go and play the U.S. amateur and the British amateurs and stuff like that, I probably would have stayed an amateur for another year. But you know, I couldn't. I couldn't even get people to give me money if I turned pro, let alone if I wanted to stay an amateur. So, you know, I just felt like staying an amateur another year in Australia. I would have just been treading water and and not going forward. So I, you know, I, I turned pro um, September October of that year, and and then. Played my first two professional events as a pro, uh, the Australian Open and the uh, Australian Masters in December of that year. And my first, my Australian Open was pretty nerve-wracking. I mean, I I, I turned pro with $200 in the bank. Mm-hmm. So I actually had to borrow money from my parents and grandparents to, to even join the ALPG tour. I didn't have enough money to even do that. So you know, turn pro, went to the Australian Open, made the cut there. wasn't anything flash, but it was all right. And then the next week um, at the Australian Masters, I played the weekend in the final group uh, with Laura Davies, who was number one in the world at the time, and played with her Saturday, Sunday, and ended up finishing second and making $25,000 and thought I was a millionaire. Like, You're on your way, right? <laughs> thought I had so much money. I kept going to the ATM machine and just – doing the balance check to, to print out. <laughs> pinch me moments you know $25,000 in the bank um yeah so uh you know for me I think it was naivety to think that that was a lot of money and you know I I got someone someone uh, donated a flight to Europe and um so I didn't have to pay for that and so I headed to Europe um, in March of 95 with around, by the time I sold my car and everything, around $20,000, $25,000 in the bank and thought even if I don't do well this year, I probably have enough money to get through the year, which, I mean, if I had known better, I would have known that that was not the case. But, mm-hmm. you know, I just, you know, this is what I had dreamed about since I was 11 was turning pro and, and you know, I'd, I'd finished second to Laura Davies. So I knew that my game held up like I had you know fortunately had that experience playing with the number one player in the world and even though I was you know so nervous and you know a little intimidated by the situation I wasn't overawed by it and I performed well so you know I really really had a lot of self-confidence without it you know overtly showing Mm -hmm. um and, you know, I went to the very first qualifying school for the European Tour in the beginning of 95 and got my card there and the tour didn't start till the end of May. So then I headed to the U.S. because ideally that was where I wanted to play was in, in the States on the LPGA. So I went and played, um, what, which was the Futures Tour back then, I played five events there before coming back and playing in Europe. But again, I just, just like I had through all of my junior and amateur career, I just just made little steps so I, I um, won one of the five events on the Futures Tour and then came back and started in Europe and had a bunch of top tens before I played the British Open in August of that year and got to the 72nd hole of, of the British Open with a five-shot lead um, and couldn't, you know, lining up on that final tee shot. My sight off the tee was uh, a Weedabix sign which was a sponsor of the British Open at the time and I had to back off three times because I couldn't believe that I <laughs> went for the show open. You know, I mean, it was just such a whirlwind, and I just I couldn't I couldn't believe that that was about to happen. I, and I, I really have no answers as to how it happened that quickly. I, you know, a lot of people work as hard as I work. You know, it's just one of those things that you have to believe a little bit in fate and, and natural natural ability and instinct. I think that yes, some luck comes into it. Fate comes into it certainly instinct, but also diminishing the role that hard work plays. Well, I'm not, certainly don't suggest that you're diminishing that at all. In fact, you suggested all throughout the conversation so far that hard work work is a big factor. So I misstated, but moreover, working harder is one thing, but working smarter is another. And so I want to kind of pull on that thread of working smarter. How did you understand through the early years as a professional what to improve and how to improve it. Was that with the help of uh, Triggsy and, and, and Calvin back home or was that with the help of who was caddying for you at the time and not Mikey? Who was your first? Uh, it was Evan, right? Evan Minster, yeah? 
Yeah, um, you know, I, I think it's very different to how young kids these days, you know, process information and, and work out what what to work on. Again, until 2003, Calvin was my only coach and what we, what we haven't talked about was when I was 16, Calvin had an accident and became a quadriplegic. Mm. So from the age of 16, Calvin coached me as a quadriplegic. So until I was, what, 2003, so 20, 26. Mm-hmm. So the next, yeah, it was a 90, I think it was a 90, what, end of 90 or 91, he became a quadriplegic. So, you know, for the next 12 years, Calvin coached me um, from a wheelchair well, and still, still coaches me from a wheelchair, but, you know, so we didn't, you know, I saw him twice, maybe three times a year through those, um, those, the best years of my career. And, you know, that was just when videoing your golf swing and downloading it onto your computer and email um, was all just starting. Um, but it was such a, I mean, really such a process. Like I would, you know, video my swing one afternoon, download it that night, email it to him. Then with the time change, he'd look at it. We'd talk, you know, it'd be a one or two day period of trying, you know, of trying to communicate what I needed to work on. So, mm-hmm. you know, and I did stats for him that he got to look at. But for me, I've always, uh, I mean, the, st- and the stats that I did back then are nowhere near in depth as what the what they do these days. But, you know, it was just fairways hit, greens hit putts and you know it was pretty basic stats but I've always been what I believe makes someone successful is being you have to be kind of brutally honest with yourself I mean I probably probably tended to be on the on the bad side of that and being way too hard on myself but I think you have to you know I never was I've never been one to make excuses and so I think you have to be real with yourself and, you know, if you shoot even par and you've hit 15 greens, you could tell yourself that you're hitting the ball well, but, you know, how many putts did you have inside of 10, 15 feet? You know, if you're putting from 30 feet all day, why were you putting from 30 feet all day? Was it because you missed fairways or was it you didn't hit your irons? You know, like there's so many other reasons as to why. And, you know, I think it's just being very brutally honest with yourself is the only way you're going to get the best out of yourself is to, to truly confront what, what your weaknesses are and what your strengths are and work on, work on all of it. Yeah, we've, we've had conversations on the pop, this podcast with uh, prominent figures that have achieved inside professional football, inside poker, inside golf, inside tennis, and that same thread of looking in the mirror and providing no excuse and using your term brutal honesty and then diving further into that, unpacking your skill set, both physical and psychological, to great depths are the common traits that we hear. My wonder then is, because sometimes it's coming from advice from coaches, I'm talking about the other conversation, sometimes it's coming from the individual themselves, and sometimes it's coming from just these moments of, oh, I figured it out because I saw someone else kind of do this. We'll, we'll talk about other players as men, as mentors. Do you recall when it came about for you, that brutal honesty, that unpacking things deeper, looking beyond just the surface, the veneer of the fairways and green stats? I think it was just an, it was always an innate thing that I did. I was, I was definitely always hard on myself, mm-hmm. um, brutally hard on myself to the point where, you know, I ended up not liking that part of myself. And, you know, I think negative self-talk and stuff and initially motivated me to prove myself wrong but I think it got quite harmful mentally for me in the end was just because I you know started listening to you know the negative self-talk and and you know smashing myself giving myself uppercuts all the time (laughs) telling myself how crap I was when you know and you know that fueled the fire to prove myself wrong but you know it eventually caught up with me but double-edged sword for sure my whole process was very very basic you know i was i was taught very basically by calvin like i said his golf knowledge came from golf magazine so you know there wasn't tons of swing thoughts you know my swing was quite 
just really my natural swing and you know ultimately probably was why you know I didn't I didn't have have to you know I had a couple of thoughts that I had to work on but once the gun went off it was just you know here we go let's find however we can you know the best way to get it in the hole you know it it was just the process was I've got to hit it there and I've got to hit it here and now I've got to make the putt you know there was there was not a lot of other external thoughts going on that you know perhaps could have made me even better but also could have clouded my mind um, to where I might not have achieved what what I did. So let's take a quick break in the action to recognize one of our partners, Under Armour. It's Under Armour's mission to make all athletes better through passion, design, and the relentless pursuit of innovation. And that ethos or mission statement couldn't be more aligned with the Earn Your Edge podcast. We're thankful to be powered by Under Armour. And that's a really nice segue into our nice kind of period, which is period from 1996 to 2001, where uh, I think I counted correctly, maybe not, but pretty close. You dominate the game winning on the LPGA tour 25 times in six years. Um, I think I would call that dominance. And I think that granted the world rankings were introduced in 2006, I believe. So prior to that is when you went through this amazing stretch, I think it's safe to say that you would have been ranked as a clear number one in this period. Correct me if I'm wrong. And with that, there's like I guess two pressures, maybe, maybe multiple pressures, but the two that I want to pull on is the pressure on the golf course. And I want to understand how you dealt with that. And then the second part of that is the pressure off the golf course when everyone's gunning for you, essentially looking at you and what you're scoring and measuring themselves against you. Yeah. The pressure on the golf course was really only the expectations I put on myself. And, you know, because my rise was very quick, like, like I said, in 95, I won the British Open and then I went to Q school, LPJ Q school at the end of that year and um, my rookie year on the LPJ started in January of 96 and I finished second in my first event and first in my second. <laughs> so, um, you know, the rise, rise happened very, what difficulty, very right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, you know, the one thing that I can't mentor young players on is the struggling professional, um, <laughs> you know, trying to, you know, make a paycheck to pay the bills. Like, I'm very, very fortunate that the game hasn't taught me that lesson. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, yeah, so the rise happened very quickly, and so then my expectation level rose with that and, and you know, the pressures that I put on myself. But, you know, my parents, are, you know, were, my dad's probably best handicap was 12. You know, my mom's best handicap was about 17. You know, they weren't, weren't good golfers, um, so – you know, there wasn't any, there was only support and love that came from them. There wasn't any pressure to perform. I, I think they, they were just amazed at how, what I was doing and really actually couldn't, couldn't fathom how that had all happened so quickly. But, um, yeah, for me, inside the ropes, like, that's what I live for, you know. That period of time, even though at the time I probably thought my mind was busy, um, it wasn't, it wasn't at all. It was, as soon as I walked walked through those ropes um, to the first tee, that was my that was my piece. Was there something you said to yourself that got you into that uh, game mode, or was it just the, the the physical act? You know, it's amazing that period of time. My practice and preparation used to be horrendous. I used to get so worked up on Tuesdays and Wednesdays because I'd hit it so poorly, and oh. um, my you know everything, nothing was good. I just was, I was a really poor practicer and I just, and then, so quite a few of the events I won and, and definitely I would say out of the seven majors I won, only one of them did I expect that I was going to play well, hmm. got based upon, based upon how I'd prepared. So, you know, a lot of the times I'd be going to the first tee going, all right, let's just take this one step at a time. You know, yeah. because I just didn't know what I was going to get. But for some reason, it was like a light went on when I went through the ropes and that was it. I was that I was ready. And it didn't matter then what what had come in practice. I only had to hit one or two good shots early in the first round and away I'd go. And you were off. Can, can, I, can I toss something at you? 
Yeah. I want to toss a theory at you. And that theory is patience and problem solving. What you learned, and, and again, this is tossing it out there and you can shoot holes in it. What you learned through the Monday through Wednesday difficulties was number one, you had to be patient because you knew through your results historically that you had great, in fact, beyond great, world-class, best in class within you. And then second, through the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday difficulties, you also had to be a really good problem solver. And even though those problem solving initiatives, the plays you would call the tires that you would kick to come up with what you were looking for, which is world-class results, even though they may have proved unsuccessful, it also meant that you would, you were auditioning different fields to create different ball flights, which ultimately meant that as soon as you landed in a place of inside the ropes and one shot at a time being patient, that when that one or two swings came about, it was, as you said, the wheels were in motion and it was, it was, uh, I guess, clear sailing. Any merit to that or total BS? Yeah, a little bit. I think... Um, Which one? Merit or BS? <laughs> Don't, you can't <laughs> insult me. It's okay. <laughs> no, um, you know, there's some merit to, to what you're saying. I think for me, it's what I learned from that period that helped me later in my career. Mm. You know, what it was is I was just practicing way too long. And it, and it was a period of, you know, I grew up in a period where, you know, working out and training and, and that sort of stuff wasn't... You know, a few people did it. You know, Greg Norman did it. Nick Faldo did it. It was, but it wasn't a common thing, and so it wasn't something that I was really taught to do. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, all I did was practice. You know, I didn't have to go and you know do an hour or two of training and uh, working out and and then go and do physio or anything like that. It was just practice, 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 and. Yeah. What eventually I took from that and why my practice was so poor was it was there was just too much of it. Gotcha. Um, you know, and I just thought to be good, I had to work hard, I had to put the hours in, and but there just wasn't there wasn't any structure or process to it, and so that's what I learned from that period. I mean, it, obviously, it didn't affect how I played once it walked through the ropes, but you know, it drove me crazy. Like it made me it made me tired. Yeah, I <laughs> I, you know, I just I just grinded myself into the ground and, you know, somehow had the stamina and mental stamina to get through Thursday to Sunday without, you know, what had happened Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday affect me too much. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. You mentioned something there later in your career, which we'll go to right now, a period where we'll call fork in the road or adversity. But before we get there, the period from 2002 to 2005, I want to go back and make the listeners aware that you also faced some adversity when you went through LPGA Q school, correct me if I'm wrong, where you made it through and you finished second in LPGA Q school with a broken bone in your hand, correct? Yeah. Yeah, I um, broke a bone, well, a hairline fracture in my right wrist. It was probably, say, four or five weeks before the Q school final. Yeah. So when I got that diagnosis and I had a cast on my arm, I, you know, I was just going to – I'd won the British Open – earlier and so we'd appealed to the LPGA at that stage if you won an event outside of the US it didn't give you a, a one year ex you know exemption right but we appealed to them because I'd broken my arm but there was sort of no no such luck and it I was just very fortunate that my agent with IMG at the time her family were friends with this hand specialist in London and before she said before you fly back to Australia I just want you to go and see him Mm -hmm. So I went and saw him and he took it out of the plaster and just put it in a soft cast and he got, and he said, you know, he was going to do treatment on it regularly for the next couple of weeks. And he said, I can't promise you anything, but he said, I feel like um, because we were playing in Florida too where everything was going to be pretty soft and I wasn't going to be hitting like on hard, hard pan, hard ground, he felt like I might have a chance. So probably after three weeks – I started hitting balls probably about 10 days before I went to Q school. But, yeah, so I went there pretty underdone. But I think have, I had that self-belief that I'd won the British Open, so I think that really carried me through. Sure. I think where where my poor practice and, and that sort of scenario helped me was that because I was my expectations were rising and rising and rising in those early years, I kind of think that, 
the pool practice and, and, and even a situation like what happened before Q school, it just lowered my expectations. Mm-hmm. It just naturally lowered them to where it kind of took the pressure off, like the pressure that I was putting on myself because I walked through the ropes going, I don't know what I'm going to get this week. <laughs> and, and then because of that, you know, I just hit one or two good shots and I'm like, all right, I can do this. Yeah. And then I was away. It's another one of those things of I don't know what I'm going to get, going to get and therefore any level of expectation is kind of extinguished is, is a great thing, a great place to compete from. And I yeah. know that mildly as a competitor, but I hear that echo through the conversations that I get to have. We'll go back to 2002 to 2005 and talk about when the wins were hard to come by and, and moreover than specifically I think what I want to try and pull on is there is there something about you, some way you responded to that period of time that you think is different from others and may inform someone who may be going through a, a, a similar period, maybe in their uh, the youth sport experience or amateur or even professional sport experience or even life experience for that matter, a difficult period that you ultimately get through and what did you learn from it maybe? Yeah. Well, I think um, just to... You know, I gave a long-winded answer on, on, you know, what I, you know, how I handled things inside the ropes and out, and I didn't really answer the outside. So through that great period of time for me when I was considered the best player in the world, outside the ropes, I, I hated. I, I didn't enjoy pretty much anything that came with it. Mm. You know, I was a pretty shy kid growing up, and, you know, I just – felt this expectation from people to be someone I wasn't. And um, and I, then I was being criticized for not being, you know, Nancy Lopez personality. And that really, that really wasn't the person that I was. And, and if I wasn't smiling all the time on the golf course, it was because I was working my butt off, you know, like I was right. really, I was really grinding, you know, trying to get the best out of myself. And, um, you know, I, I really took that criticism to heart and to the point where after 2000, 2001, you know, I pretty much, I mean, LPJ World Golf Hall of Fame, I completed the career Grand Slam. In 02, I did the Super Slam. Like, I just didn't have any, go- I didn't, you know, even these goals weren't goals of mine at the beginning of my career, which only was, you know, seven years before. And so I achieved everything so quickly that, one, being a goal setter, I didn't really have any goals that I felt were going to be life-changing. Um, and, two, I started I started setting a goal of not being number one. I'd be happy to be number two in the world because mm. number two in the world has less focus. No one wants to talk to number two in the world as much. And I actually... Not long into probably 2003, I knew that that was a bad way to think. I knew that trying to be something less than you knew you were capable of, setting a goal for less than you were capable of being was not good. And so I spoke to my first ever sports psychologist here in the States and I told him how I felt. And... He was like, I've never worked with anyone that doesn't want to be the best. I don't, you know, like he just couldn't, he was so dumbfounded. And I was like, I don't want it. I don't want to be the best, but I want to be good. So mm-hmm. you have to help, me. you have to help me set goals. And well, that didn't go very far. Um, <laughs> one session, because he just, he just didn't, he didn't get me. So, um, you know, I traveled along a little bit further in that year and at the US Open in 2003. And, and by, you know, I think about my adversity and my adversity would be someone's career, especially at that time, would be someone's career year. So, you know, it's all relative. And, you know, I wish I had a little bit more of perspective then. Yep. You know, it, it's easy to look back now and go, geez, if you could, someone could have just shook me and given me a bit of perspective. Things might have kept travelling along the way they were. But... I was Friday afternoon at the US Open at Pumpkin Ridge um, in 03. I was on the cut line, but it looked like I was probably going to miss the cut, but I was on the range grinding away. Calvin and I had tried to 
make a few changes at the beginning of the year when I was home and I was making strides on them but I just had lost a little bit of confidence and Ian Triggs was over at the US Open working with Rachel Hetherington and he stopped and I'd known Triggsy since I was 14 and he just said I can see what you and Calvin are trying to work on and he said I he said I I'd like to help you both out if if you're interested and Triggsy knew me well enough to know that Calvin was always going to be a part of my life and part of my team and someone that I was always going to turn to for help and and I never wanted Calvin to not be a part of that so you know that's when I started working with Triggsy and and not long after that was when he suggested that I talk to Noel Blundell who's a Probably the most well-known sports psychologist in Australia, I would say. For sure, for sure. So, you know, I started working with Noel and just sort of, you know, talking through this these feelings that I had as well as, you know, many people were like, you have all these great experiences to draw upon, you know, just go back to how you felt then. And I just never had, I never had a process. I never understood how I ever did it. I just did it. So I sort of had to relearn I had to relearn and be retaught something that came naturally to me just such a short period of time ago. But I had to relearn exactly what it was that I did and what I did well. Were there one one or two things with the help of Kelvin Triggsy and Noel Bondell that you could pinpoint that you did to relearn that process of self-belief, of being able to enter an event and know that you have full right to consider yourself one of the best in the world and execute that way? Yeah, I think it, it was also, you know, it's touching upon how hard I was on myself and the negative self-talk and all of that. And because I was so hard on myself, I was so hard on everybody else around me. I expected everyone else around me to to want, you know, to get the very best out of themselves to help me. So as you know... Mikey was caddying for me by then, but even when Evan caddied for me, you know, I wanted them to to expect perfection as much as I expected it, and I expected it from them. So I just I got to the point where I didn't really like how I was, and and I started to notice how people were around me away from golf, you know, um, and I didn't like that. I didn't I didn't want to be that person. And so it was, that was sort of the challenge was, yes, all of those traits were what made me good, but I didn't want to continue to be that person. So I had to, I had to try and figure out a way that I could still be good and not be that person. I probably still was to a point for many, many years, but I definitely wasn't as bad. And I, and I definitely picked up on times when I was borderline getting back to that person and, you know, I'd rein myself in because I just, I didn't, you know, as good as I played through that period of time, I didn't think it was necessary to be that person. Right. It sounds to me, not only you coined that, sorry, you, you, you hit on that word perspective, but also you're hitting on a concept called self-reflection. Yes. That you have this processing system that would happen after, after an event, whether that's um, a round or whether that's a conversation with a person, but you also developed this kind of internal CPU that was monitoring your presence, your interactions, your internal dialogue at the same time. And, and that's what helped you ultimately get to a place where, and I want to explore this just a little bit and you've been great with your time, cut me off whenever. I've kind of got two other concepts that I want to discuss here and that's returning to triumph, the 2006 season, the first major of the year and the shot kind of that, I mean, I remember it so well seeing it on live coverage and I kind of define this as not not your career because a shot can't define a career, but was one of the greatest that I've so I've seen you hit, and you've hit plenty of hundreds of great shots at the ANA or back then it was the Craft, correct? And you start the final yeah. round seven back of the lead in sixth place, and I'll let you tell the story of uh, the final round. I guess actually before I get to that, was there something about the warm up that that told you I've got it and I'm going to go out and shoot sixty five and get into contention and potentially win this thing? Well, um, so it's actually a funny story between Triggsy and I because at the start of the week, so the weekend before we didn't have an event and so I was out in California early and Triggsy was there and we were doing some work and Monday afternoon rolls around and, you know, I'm still going through these periods of time where my practice is not good. 
<laughs> and Trigsy's like, you know what, it's really close, it's really close. And I honestly, I grew to hate being really close if I wasn't, if I didn't believe I was really close. And I was like, Trigsy, it's not effing close. Like, it's not. <laughs> I've been part of those conversations, by the way, don't worry. I'm close smoke up my ass. It's not close. You know, it's just going off. It's not close. Yep. So anyway, so he's there till, I think he's there till Thursday. So shoot two under the first round. But Lorena, I think Lorena shot Shot 62. Yeah. Yeah, 10 under that day. And so even though I felt like I played okay, I felt like I was out of the tournament already and then you know played well the next day which put me into the last group on on Saturday with Lorena and Michelle Wee and yeah because I think Lorena had shot even or like I was I think I was two uh, three or four shots behind starting that day mm-hmm. anyway I played played poorly Saturday um, and and I I'd come off my first year in 05 where I hadn't hadn't won on the LPGA. I'd won the Australian Masters at the beginning of the year, but I hadn't I didn't win on the LPGA that year and you know, that was the first time I had to deal with that and and then I I was inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame, the LPGA Hall of Fame at the end of 05 and so I, you know, I, I felt like I was a long way off. Um, you know, I and I hadn't started the year off great. So when Saturday, when I played the way I did on Saturday, I was like, I'm just not ready yet. I'm just not ready to play good. You know, I just that every, you know, that just there was a lot of self doubt in that round. And uh, anyway, so I sort of went home because Michelle and Lorraine, I hadn't played well that day, and if I'd have played half decent, I felt like I had a chance on Sunday. And I went home that night, and I was like, you really let an opportunity slip. And it wasn't until the next morning I was I was actually a little bit early, you know, had some time to kill before I walked out to warm up and I just went into um, this little side hospitality area within the locker room and they had a local newspaper there and I just sat down to read it. And the article was that Annika was 10 shots behind and they were giving her a shot at winning because there wasn't that many people between her and the lead. Mm-hmm. And I was like, if she's got a chance to win 10 shots behind, I have a chance to win seven shots behind. So that was really what, you know, kicked me up the bum and sent me to the range with the mindset that, you know, if I got off to a decent start in the round that I had a chance to post a score. And, and you know, that's essentially what I did. I You were seven under through 11. Yeah, seven under through 11. And then, and then you know, then it got real and I sort of hung on hung on for the next few holes and then got to 18 at seven under. So was I seven under through 11? I was seven under for the tournament through Sorry, 11. Sorry, Yeah, five under for the day. Exactly. And um, got to 18, seven under for the tournament, five under for the day. And it was the first year they'd ever moved the tee up on 18 to make it reachable. But I missed the fairway. and But I knew I needed to make birdie and – Anyway, I hacked my layup as far down as I could. Could I didn't get a great lie in the rough, and I had 116 yards to the pin, and you know, just just a you know, like half grip wedge, sort of just a nice nice swing on that was a really good number actually, and I was just you know try and get it as close as you can, you know, just to give yourself a great opportunity, and you know, it was just one of those shots that never left the pin. And then one one bounce and rolled into the hole and yeah chaos ensued after that <laughs> I, you know you, you don't expect that to happen and and literally at the time when it went in the leaders behind us weren't doing anything I think I was tied for the lead at seven under coming down last and so they were on sixteen so I was like I I just hold it to win like you know I've just won so that was sort of like how I was celebrating you know. Very uncurry web like I would describe it. Um, <laughs> That's the new curry web, not the old curry web. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Mikey uh, was as strong as ten men holding me, and and had the golf bag. I know he had the bag on his back. Secondarily, like amazing, the shot was amazing. But Mikey carrying the bag and also carrying you at the same time is amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we were both uh, as strong as one another at the time. But um, yeah, I, I love talking about that moment because I can actually. I can still feel 
exactly how I felt. Yeah. It really takes me back to that moment. But I quickly had to, when I got to the school tent, had I realised that shall we had birdied, I think, 16 to go to eight under. So I was like, game on, someone's going to finish at nine. So I was like, I had to calm myself down and prepare for a playoff. And as it turned out, Lorena eagled the last to tie me at nine under. And, uh, yeah, we played the 18th again and literally the only time I've hit it far enough down there to go for that green and two and all the years that we've played it from that front tee was that playoff hole. And Lorena had hit an absolute bomb down there and she was going to hit like a hybrid and, and I had to hit three wood. Um, and I couldn't even go at the right side of the green. I had to hit it at the left side of the green. And I said to Mike, yeah, we've got to go for it. She's going to go for it. And I said, she just hit it to 10 feet the last time she played the hole. I have to go for it. And I was like, I hadn't even considered what was over the green because it's an island green. I'm like, is there enough rough to pull this ball up, you know, if it goes over? And he's like, yep, I've had a look. There's rough back there. It'll hold it up. So I hit three wood. It went over the back, caught, <laughs> pulled up in the rough. And honestly, the up and down was incredible too. Like it's it difficult back there. Yeah, I didn't have an easy chip shot, and I had it to hit it to about oh, eight feet and below the hole. And Lorena had hit a good shot in there, and it just went through. And she hit not a great putt. I think it just exploded in her hands, and it went about ten or twelve feet past. And she missed her birdie putt, and, and I made mine. So what started out as a week where I was getting up Trigsy, telling him I wasn't close, I ended up <laughs> winning my winning my seventh mate. <laughs> Such a brilliant story. Thanks for sharing. And I can imagine the feelings that are going through your your body and mind right now. It's um, it's the same for everyone that's going to be listening to this for sure. So thanks for sharing. Follow-up question. How did the rest of your year change? How did your mindset change? Because you went on to win five times that year, correct? Yeah, no, that was, that was pos- possibly ranks up there with probably one of the best years of my career. Hmm. Um, that sort of, that sort of just freed me up. Like I, I was like, that experience and how I won that event, nothing could top that, you know. And I was just like, I just played with a lot of freedom that year and just felt like anything was possible. So, yeah, it was that 12, next 12 months was, you know, I started 2007 off really well too. I won both tournaments in Australia. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a great 12-month period there where, um, you know, I sort of really turned, turned everything around. Yeah. We could continue to explore the landscape of your t- career since then, but I want to move on just in the interest of your time and discuss, discuss something that's really important to you. I know that for a fact, and that's legacy. And if you speak to any Aussie golfer and you'd be just one of a few names they list as inspiration, possibly using the word idol. In fact, the recipient of your benevolence, Minji Lee, won for their fifth LPGA victory uh, this last week. Can you speak to how you see your role and the legacy that you'd like to leave through the Curry Up Series and your scholarship program? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I sort of look at it as a bit of a pay it forward type scenario. Greg Norman did something similar for me. I He had the Greg Norman Junior Golf Foundation in the very first year of its, of its existence the overall girls and boys winner at the year-end event got a, won a trip to spend a week with him in Florida, and I won the girls, overall girls. So um, I flew over from from Australia and spent the week in South Florida staying in Greg Norman's house, uh, which, you know, the first morning I woke up in his house, I couldn't, you know, I just couldn't believe it. Like, it was just so surreal, but such, such you know, as far as, you know, taking any sort of advice that week, for me it wasn't like there was probably at the time specific things that I got from it, but the overall thing I got from it was I wanted to do this even more than I did the week before I came. (laughs) You know, and that Greg was so giving of his time and it was such an inspiration for me to just be around him. And he had... He had just won the Canadian Open maybe two or three weeks before we'd come over. And at that time, I think he'd gone 18 months without winning anywhere in the world. So it was a long, long drought for him as well. So, you know, it just just showed me, you know, and just inspired me a little bit more. And so Golf Australia and I worked together to come up with the Curry Web Series. And it's a series of events that the 
the top women amateurs play in Australia and the, the top two girls receive a, a scholarship, monetary scholarship, but the, the part that I think is, well, it's cool for me and I, I'm the one giving it, but I, I get as much out of it as um, the two girls come over and, um, well, for, for the majority of the 12 years, it was at the US. And the last two years, it's been at the, um, oh, well, I'm going to call it the LPJ Championship. It's not called that, but that's what I call it for the last two years. And they, they come over, they stay in the house that I rent and stay with me for the week and walk inside the ropes during the practice rounds and meet some of the players that I, you know, that I play practice rounds with and, you know, just sort of give them something to aspire to, you know, you know, one day to play the US Open, you know. And what's been really cool for me is, is to see some of those girls that, you know, stayed with me in the house at the US Open now teeing it up at the US Open. You know, I think, uh, you know, for me it's been so rewarding just to, you know, just to watch their, their progress and, and I guess understand what my parents have gone through all these years with live scoring and, and watching their <laughs> scores and, and cheering them along and, and sort of just being there. You know, I'm, I'm definitely not – I've definitely had many experiences in my life where – a veteran player has come up and just given me unsolicited advice and I don't I've never I never really appreciated it sometimes mm -hmm. just because it was it was at a bad time I, I wasn't you know I didn't need to hear that you know mm -hmm. Wednesday afternoon yeah. so I'm never one to push myself on the girls but they you know I do make sure that they know that if they ever need advice or a help in any way that um that they can reach out and I'm more than happy to to give them any help that hopefully that I have, you know, it's been, it's been great. I, you know, until I, until I started this, you don't, I don't think you ever realize that the experiences that you have, have had can help somebody else. Oh yeah. In, in, in fact, that's probably the, the strongest of offerings that you can provide is the lessons that you learn through experience. Far more valuable are those than the X's and O's of how to hit a shot or a swing technique. Yeah. So yeah, I just really love being a part of, of all the young Australian girls and, and even some of the, the other young girls out on tour, you know, they'll, few of them will come and ask me for my opinion on, on stuff or advice on something. And I'm, I'm more than happy to, to help because the game has given me so much. And, you know, I, I, I just want to see everyone else get as much out of the game as I have. We've got some time for just a few more minutes for some quick hits. Yep. Okay. Favorite golf course in the world? Ooh, um, I'm going to say Kingston Heath in mm, Melbourne. My favorite as well. Favorite <laughs> event in the world? Oh. If you had to play it over and over and over because of the golf course or the spirit or whatever, what would it be? Yeah, I'd say probably the ANA just because of the history I've had there. Right. Um, and this year, the course was just in such great shape. It was back to the way it used to be and the way I remembered it when I first came on tour. Beautiful. Probably, you know, design-wise, not the best golf course in the world, but, you know, it just I love it because it, on the LPGA, we don't have a lot of history and a lot of tradition from week to week, and this is something that we do have. So that's why I love going back to that event every year. Mm -hmm. When you got into contention, or at any point in time for that matter, did you watch a scoreboard or not? Yeah, always watch the scoreboard, whether I'm in contention or not. And did you play with score in mind, or did you, did you try and forget it and go one shot at a time? I never set, I never set myself a score. Just you know, tried to shoot as low as I could every time I went out there. Mm -hmm. How often swing feel versus technique thought? Uh -huh. um, even as as few technical thoughts that I had before I started working with Trigzy, I would say. There's only one tournament in my whole career where I played without a technical thought, and that was the 2001 US Open at Pine Needles. Brilliant. That is clearing up a misconception that's held by 98% of those that are uh, fans and participants in the game of golf that uh, the best players play without a feel or a technical thought. Yeah. That was, that was the only week. Uh, all I was thinking about was my, the timing of my golf swing. That was mm. not one technical thought at all. Yeah. Uh, this one might be a little bit longer than a quick hit, but uh, if you could summarize in a few words, what, what would be your hope for the LPGA Tour in 10 to 20 years from now? Hmm. It's in a great place, right? Yeah, it's a good question. Well, I'd definitely love to see the diversity continue. I'd love to see 
you know, well, I'd love to see it strengthening in the US. You know, I think it's it's always going to be the biggest market in the world for golf. So, I, you know, I think we do so great outside of, of the US. I'd really like to see strengthen in, in how many events we have, but popularity and, you know, I watched a couple of older LPGA events the other day and, and just the numbers of people out there watching us. You know, I'd, just like, I'd like to see our popularity continue to grow, especially over here. Fantastic. And finally, what advice would you give to the 13-year-old version of yourself? To enjoy the ride a little more, to enjoy the good, really enjoy the good because, you know, the bad's always going to be hard to take, but just to really appreciate how good it's going to be and not to take it for granted. Wonderful. Cara, you've been amazing. And I want to leave the listeners with a quote that you shared with the audience at your Hall of Fame induction. The beauty about golf is one day I love it, the next I hate it, but no matter how my day goes on the course, I get up the next and I do it all again. And I think that's the spirit of you as a champion is that you're a, a fighter and a, a person that will give to the game, to those inside of the game, and also those outside of the game. So I can't thank you enough for sharing so much of your time today to provide wisdom to those that are going to tune in. Yeah, thanks, Cameron. Thanks for it's always good to to reminisce and, and talk about those things. It's uh, cathartic for me as well. So I hope everyone enjoys it. I'm sure they will, and I look forward to seeing you at an upcoming event. Cheers, mate. We'll see you soon. Thanks very much for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Team Altus and Instagram at Altus Performance. Also, thanks to Cordy Walker for his wonderful production work on this and coming episodes of Earn Your Edge.